This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. We have just marginalized death and dying, so it's just not part of life. We outsource it to hospitals and we outsource it to funeral homes. And I'd really like us to all kind of say that's not something for the professionals. It's it's for all of us to integrate into our lives because it will come for us someday, whether our own death or the death of someone we love. And, and so I think that's kind of my hope is just the normalization of death, dying and grief. We've experienced so much loss and pain, both individually and collectively, especially in the last several years. And what does it look like for our pain and our loss to be transformed? Well, I talk with Amanda Held Opelt. She's the author of A Hole in the World, and she talks about losing her sister, Rachel Held Evans, as well as her own losses she's witnessed and experienced in her own body. You'll be encouraged to know what to do with your own loss as you move forward. Listen in. Welcome to the Finding Holy Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Hales, author of A Spacious Life. I love big ideas, but ideas have to move beyond an ivory tower to find their application in the midst of our work and our laundry routines. Here on the Finding Holy Podcast, expect conversations about how to live faithfully in a post-Christian world, but without the vitriol, posturing, or shouting across the aisles. All right. It is really fun and special to have Amanda Held Opelt. She is the author of the recently released book, A Hole in the World, Finding Hope in Rituals of Grief and Healing. So thanks for being with us. Ashley, thanks so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to talk to you. Oh, you are so welcome. And thank you. Thank you for sending the book. And it's fun to have to have books feel like friends, right? To to cross the miles. And yeah, I think we, we look to books, especially when we need them. Um, and your book on grief, tell us a little bit, and you know, you've experienced the loss of your sister, probably mostly, um, but so pregnancy loss and witnessing loss and your humanitarian aid capacities. So yeah, what is it? What, how is maybe the story of loss or grief shifted for you or deepened for you? Well, I think that it, it's interesting. I've always worked in kind of the helping sphere. So I started as like, you know, a missionary in India, and then I came and did social work in the United States and, um, and then shifted to a, a humanitarian aid focus. I was, I worked in staff care actually for humanitarian aid workers. So I always like to tell people I'm, I wasn't a proper aid worker. Like I wasn't actually delivering the aid, but I was coming alongside those who were and, and creating staff care policies for our organization. And so had a lot of training on resilience and 
um, psychological first aid and debriefing trauma and the impact of trauma, trauma awareness. And, and so I kind of just thought that all that exposure to other people's losses and tragedies and kind of an academic the academic groundwork that had been laid for me um, when it comes to loss and grief and trauma, I, I just thought when it happens to me, I'm going to be prepared. Like I know what I'm doing. I have I have the tools. We're good. <laughs> yeah, right. I've watched other people lose their loved ones. I've watched other people face tragedy. Like, um, but I, when it happened to me, and I was kind of at the epicenter of my own loss. It was just an entirely different experience. And I realized kind of the, the privilege of aid work is that you get to fly into a disaster zone like I did or a war zone and you witness just her, horrific scenes and, and, and legitimately traumatizing, legitimate secondary trauma. But you do get to fly home. You do get to go back to your place of security and safety. And I just, I, the whole time this was happening is my sister was dying over the three week period that she was dying. And then when she died and then the pregnancy losses that followed that, that the whole time, I just had this sense in my body that I'm going to be able to fly home from this. Right. Like I'm, where's my, I have my ticket home, right. I'm going to be repatriated back to the United States. And, um, I, I have, I have yet to be repatriated back to the life before <laughs> I'm still, I'm still here. Uh, and and I think just learning to live in your own life when it doesn't go the way you wanted um, is is just a new it's it's a new learning it's a new skill set and you know I've certainly used some of the things that I've learned and some of the things I've witnessed as an aid worker but um, but it 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 shifted everything shifted for me when I experienced it myself for sure. Um... You know, in what ways have rituals helped kind of maybe provide like a series of stepping stones to help you through? Well, it's, I think when I started learning about Greek rituals and really it was just an article popped up on my newsfeed and I was like, I'm going to have a look at at this. And and it kind of led me down this path of learning about strange ancient rituals of death, rituals of of grief. Um, And I don't know that I ever thought in my mind, I need to start doing these things. Like I need to start telling the bees is is a ritual that I looked at. You know, when someone dies in the household, you go tell the bees that, you know, I don't know that I need to go tell the bees. Although I could, we do have beehives. My husband's a beekeeper. Um, Or I don't know that I need to, you know, necessarily go find a bell to toll or um, bake a corpse cake or some of the strange foods they used to bake at funeral, you know, but what, what these rituals did do for me is they just helped me kind of name an emotion um, that was buried inside of me. I think that the most surprising thing about grief for me was just how, um, how chaotic the emotions were and that it wasn't just sadness. Like sadness is the emotion you associate with grief, but there are a lot of other emotions that go with it. Anger, fear, guilt, shame, um, uh, embarrassment, just there's just some really strange emotions that you experience when you've lost someone you really love and depend on. And so I think the rituals kind of helped me kind of name and recognize what those, what those emotions were. Like a lot of grief rituals are superstitions. Um, you know, if you see your reflection in the mirror, you may be the next to die. So you, you need to cover the mirrors. And it, it helped me realize actually, yes, I am afraid of death now in a way that I never was before. So just things like that, 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 that kind of helped me understand what was going on. Wearing black 
you know, is, is a ritual. We still sometimes, we saw that in the queen's funeral. And, um, but it, I, you know, we don't really practice anymore, but it, it helped me realize, Oh, there, I do feel like when I go out in public, I'm carrying this brokenness that no one can see. And I feel, I feel unseen and I need people to treat me gently because I'm, I'm falling apart inside, but nobody, nobody around me knows what's going on. And if I wore black, they would. So just, it just kind of helped me process through what I was feeling. Yeah. What have you made of, you know, all of the, the queen's funeral, um, you know, there's been chatter, of course, online about the amount paid on all this ridiculous pageantry. You know, as Americans, we probably are a little bit further away from understanding the import of the, a lot of those rituals um, as folks in Britain. But, um, you know, as as we have seen a nation grieving um, and people all over the world grieving, how has ritual been important to to a community instead of just the individual. And I think that's what's really fascinating. And you draw such good attention in your book to talking about how grief and loss, how we need, it needs to be communal and not simply individual. So how have you seen that kind of played out or played out in your own story? Yeah, I think that the the gift that a ritual is, is that it, it gives you just a next right step. Like I, I think when somebody dies, you know that you need to mark the moment because it's a significant life change. Similar to a marriage, you know, it's like all these rituals that we still have around weddings, whether it's wearing blue or, you know, the, the shopping for the dress and the, the bachelorette party and like whatever, all these rituals and, and traditions that we have. It's because we need to mark an we need to mark a moment. We need to mark an important change in life to kind of reflect the gravity of it. And and when when death happens, we need to mark that moment as a significant change for the grievers who have lost an, an important pillar in their life. And condolers or people offering condolence, so comforters that come, they might not know what to do next. A griever certainly doesn't know what the next right thing to do is when you've had a catastrophic loss. A condoler might not know what to say, what to do. And a ritual, I think, just provides a script for people to say, here's what you can do. You can go toll the bell. You can deliver this kind of food. Um, you can cover the mirrors. You can, um, you know, decorate the graves. All of these things that that we we do so that we don't have to sit there and look, look at each other and say, what do we do now? And I think we, we definitely saw that in the queen's funeral. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not British and I did not descend from anyone that was so negatively affected by colonization. I know there's, there's a lot of feelings around the queen. So I've kind of tried to reserve some of my, my opinions and whatnot, but I do think there's something significant about her passing, no matter how you look at it. Um, And it, it, and I think all of the rituals that we saw play out just gave people the opportunity. It's like, what do you do when the queen dies? What do you do when someone who's been a figurehead for 70 years dies? Well, we need to mark this moment because it's going to have a psychological impact. And so here are all the things, the, the, the marches, the tolling of the bell, the hymns, the, the visitations, all of these things at least kind of create this before and after experience that I think is, is necessary. Yeah. And then I think, you know, there's something too in, in what does it mean to mark grief collectively? Um, I, you know, I think we're, we, yeah, we, we're happy as Americans anyway, to mark joy collectively. Um, 
but we don't, we've lost, you know, as you're trying to recover a lot of this, um, we've lost a lot of collective ways of marking loss and pain. And then you see it come out sideways. You write about even like we've commodified candor in your book. Like we've, we've weaponized our pain or we've um, made it a product that's sellable on Instagram. Would you talk a little bit about how maybe, maybe because we haven't, we don't have good communal practices of grief and loss that, that that's how we have seen it come out. Yeah. I, I'm, it's interesting you bring that up. That was maybe the, the, the three pages of the book that I maybe struggled with the most, because it was so hard to articulate exactly the tension I was feeling, even in writing a book about grief is like, I'm trying to sell a book about my pain. Like I'm, I'm complicit in this whole thing. And, and this, this may just be capitalism, consumerism, like whatever, like we find, we, we just assign a price tag to anything. And it, it's also our performative nature that, that, that we have that like because of social media, social media is the medium that we're using for so much of our entertainment and connection. And it is inherently performative by nature. And, and so it's just really easy. I mean, in some ways it's great, right? Like I'm so glad that there are so many accounts and so many influencers out there that are talking about giving people permission to be in pain and to be honest about it. We've come such a long way from the grin and bear it years of kind of, I think my grandmother's generation. And, um, but at the same time, there's, it's still curated, you know, and it's still, anytime it gets posted for on the platform of social media, there's a performative nature to it. Whereas so many of the the communal rituals of grief that we saw before, there was n- there was nothing to be performed. I mean, there was nothing. Um, it was, it was literally just you be your full self and we will accept you no matter, no matter how you're grieving. If it means that you're wailing or you're screaming or you're, you're silent or you're distant, whatever the case may be, we're going to make space as a community for you to be who you are. And it's just, there was an intimacy to community that we used to have with, with small towns and neighbors and, and, you know, extended family that live nearby that we don't really have anymore. We have these kind of far flung, uh, just kind of consumers of our lives and our grief and social media. I'm kind of rambling on, but I, and, and so now you, you understand why it was hard to write those three pages because it's just this tension of like, I'm so glad that we have permission, but I also want to be really careful that we don't then just start to curate our grief for people to consume online either. Yeah. How have you, you know, kind of walked that line? Um, right. You know, how have you been the grief girl <laughs> online. And yet, you know, I found that a little bit when I was releasing a spacious life and, you know, the subtitle talks about hurry and hustle. And I was like, I can't very well ask people to go hustle <laughs> and help me out, you know, or I can't even hustle in this book launch because that's antithetical to what I'm writing about. But at the same time, as an author, you have to, you have to show up. So what does it look like? And I think that, you know, that might help the average person who is dealing with loss and grief and pain because we all do, um, you know, so how do we, how do we be ourselves, you know, to some extent on social media, which we can't be our full selves, they're flattened. Um, but to what extent might we use pain um, to create community, uh, but then to also figure we've got to move through it too. 
Yeah. No, it's so interesting you say that. And I'm glad to hear you struggled with it. I mean, I'm sorry you struggled, but it makes <laughs> me feel a little bit less alone. It's that point where your your convictions bump up against the thing you kind of need to do. <laughs> um, and and I, yeah, I think, I, I think for me, what's been really important is like, there were just, there were as honest and, and real and vulnerable as I tried to be in my book. I, I think there are some things that don't belong to other people in the sense that there, there were a lot of very personal details and personal feelings that I didn't share and I'll never share. I mean, every grief story has so many facets to it. And I, I was really picky and choosy about which facets I, I allowed people into. Um, but also, and I was able to do that because I have such a solid community of friends and, and mentors and spiritual um, shepherds here that I've been able to kind of share those harder, more intimate details with. And, and so I think there's always like um, presence over platform. Like I've always tried to like hold this value of being with people more than I'm with my online platform or even my writing and my creativity. Like I, I think real good creative work flows from actually being in your life, like, and being with people and being really, really present with the people that are, are, are in proximity to you. And so I think, I think that's what I just want us to be careful. Like, I know that you can like find little therapeutic axioms, like bite-sized axioms and like on TikTok and Instagram now. And I know that you can listen to a pot, like a great podcast like this, and you can feel like you're kind of with someone in your grief, but that is never a replacement for the real life presence of people that are near you. Those are the people that are actually able to show up from with meals and mow your lawn and let you cry on, on their shoulder for hours on end. And so just want to be careful that we're not replacing, I think is what feels important to me. Like there, no Instagram account can replace like a, an actual therapist or a counselor or a counselor right. or a pastor, right. you know? This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow. We believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, Bow offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Yeah. And I think it's just, it's so hard when we have, right, these devices in our pockets that promise like a way out from grief, right? We even just look to our phones just with our everyday losses, you know, to kind of distract us from, from pain. Absolutely. 
Yeah. No, I do that all the time. It's just a, it's an, it's a numbing mechanism. It's a, um, and that's what I, I loved your book, A Spacious Life, so much is that I, I think that that's what we're missing most when it comes to processing our grief is just space. And that's what rituals provide are just these containers. It's like it takes a long time to toll a bell 55 times or 96 times like it did for the queen. It takes a long time to toll a bell that many times and it forces you to just reside in your pain for a little bit instead of reject or numb or shove it down. And yeah, I, I, I love that, that aspect of your work of like calling people's attention to where space is needed. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which of these rituals do you feel like could be something we could do in our modern lives? You know, that feels like, what would it look, you know, if a, if a book club is reading your book and they were like, okay, how are we going to actually help to be a community, mark each other's losses and pains, whether that's death or you lost a job or, cause I think part of it too, is we don't do well grieving the big things because we also don't grieve the small things. Um, or we don't feel it's worthy of our grief. So, you know, is there a place for us to start as if we don't have bees and we can't tell the bees? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What do we do? Well, I think, I mean, I learned so much about um, grief from my friend Shelly, who's Jewish and grew up in Israel, lost her. I write about her in the book. She lost her, her mother and her sister, who was nine months pregnant at the time in a car accident. Um, she was 20 years old. Her grandmother died like the next week. I mean, just brutal, brutal, brutal loss at just this super formative time in her life. And and I think what there were so many practices that she had in her Jewish community that I, I felt like would would really behoove us, <laughs> you know, just the, the practice of sitting Shiva. And I, that to me, I, I had so many mixed feelings about it when I when I learned about it. But it's just this practice of for seven days after the loss, um, people just come and be with you in your home and they do everything you need around the home. They buy your groceries, they do your dishes, they feed your dog, whatever. And I thought, like, I'm an introvert. Right. Like, actually, I have actually really appreciated alone time in my grief. But I think part of the reason I want to be in my alone in my grief is because I am so worried about what people will think. And so I'm always I'm kind of having to put on this like, well, am I am I being strong enough? Like, am I do I have enough fortitude or even if there are times in your grief you want to laugh? Are people going to judge me because I want to just watch a rerun of the office when I should be grieving, whatever. So like it, it sitting Shiva, it, it, it requires the griever to kind of submit themselves to the humiliation of being seen for who they really are. And if you're willing to do that, it can be really, really life-giving. And just the way that the, the Jewish faith works in the mourner's prayer, the Kaddish is, is a prayer that they pray at almost every gathering that they have, every service that they have. So every religious service makes space for the people in the room that are grieving. And she, you know, she, Shelly told me that by the time it was, she was actually a mourner at a religious service. She knew the Kaddish prayer by heart. And and so it, she's like, it just tumbled out of my mouth because it had been kind of woven, woven into the fibers of, of my, of my, my soul. And, and so I think, I think things like that, I think Christians could do a better job of making space in their worship services for lament. I know lament is a hot topic right now, but what are we lamenting? Like loss, grief, injustice. There are people in the room who are in pain and there are people in the room who don't feel like singing that God is their victorious 
warrior. Um, singing about the goodness of God, I think sometimes has to be balanced with singing about the difficulty of the world. And so I think there are some things that we could learn. The, the, and that's something my church we're trying to do is like, what what do we need to do to just name and and speak over the people in the room who are grieving every week, um, while also making space for those who are celebrating and those who are joyful. You know, that's that's life. That's community together. Yeah, you know, like Paul's metaphor of the body, right? And if if there's one part that's hurting, then like the whole body is hurting, and but then there's other parts that are rejoicing. And so, you know, how do we? And that does something for both parties, right? To for the joy to infuse the grief, and for the grief to infuse the joy. Yeah, I, I think sometimes I felt like people were afraid to be joyful around me when I was grieving, but it was like, no, I need to remember that life can be like this again. Like, I need your joy as a provision in this wilderness. <laughs> and so um, I think I think churches, gosh, it's one of our few remaining institutions and places where people gather Um with others that are maybe even outside their friend group. It's, it's, you know, we don't even, we don't even go to the office anymore. Like we work from home. Like the church is one of these few spaces that I think we just have to work really hard to preserve, uh, preserve that type of community. What has been, I guess, surprising in your own lament and grief um, over the last few years? And as you wrote this book, what is, what has been something that surprised you? Yeah, I mean, I think that, like I said from the the beginning, it's the the before and after part of it has been hard for me to kind of wrap my my brain around. Is I always thought maybe I could get back to who I was before, and I, you know, I I, I do believe there's healing. I believe that you develop the strength to carry the burden, but you never put the burden down. Um, and so I I do feel like I am feeling myself rise to meet the new story that my life is. Um, but I, I also wish that I could cross the street without being afraid of getting hit by a car. I never used to feel that way, you know, but it's like, I have this kind of strange, it's just kind of opens up an awareness of how precarious life is. And I wish that I didn't have that. I wish that I could kind of live in that naive way. Um, so, so I think that's been surprising. And also I think I've just been surprised at like what it's like to read the Bible again through the lens of grief and, how much God is portrayed as an, as an emotional God. I, I, I don't know. I always thought emotions were, were bad. We're taught that emotions can't be trusted um, and that are a sign of spiritual weakness, but we see a very emotional God, a God who's angry, a God who is sad, a God who weeps, a God who even regrets like that's mysterious. Right. Um, but I, he, he experiences these full spectrums of emotion, just like we do. And to, to feel, to know him better in that way, I think has been a surprising gift of grief. I remember like being pregnant with our first child and, um, well, first live birth child. Yeah. And, and just realizing I am carrying a baby who will die, you know, like eventually, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. As, yeah. And, and, and someone who will outlive me and, you know, being in those spaces of just realizing our mortality and realizing the fragility of life is, is hard to figure out how do I carry that day in and day out? Um, and still, yeah, do the dishes and feed my family or, or whatever as well. I know, I know. I, I, that was a big realization I had as I was writing the book and my, my children were both born right around the time that my sister died, you know, one right before and one, you know, a year or two later. And yeah, just realizing any relationship you have ends in grief. 
Like either you die or they die. <laughs> like either way, it ends in grief and it ends in in sorrow. And so how do you kind of bring your heart fully to that relationship without living in the fear of that, without dreading that? I mean, it requires, I think, such a, um, what's the word? I think it just requires a real diligence of, of, uh, of mental, the mental ability to just be present. And like that, that, that's a, that's a, a skill of resilience. And, and I think it just, that's what's required of us to kind of live fully into our lives. Talk a little bit about that. You know, you talked about having all this resilience training. Um, what's, what's the connection between grief or loss, death and resilience? Well, you know, like we learned 10 factors for resilience or 20 factors for resilience and all, you know, like, um, I think the ones that stuck out to me most were, you know, just like resilient people recognize that they're whole beings and that the mind and the body can't be separate and that trauma has an impact on the body. You know, we all know now the body keeps the score as much as we don't want to believe that. Right. Um, And it's amazing how much that resonates with people because I keep seeing that book on like, you know, the top 10 books on Amazon. I'm like, it's It's been around for a long time. It's not an easy read. Like it's very academic. So it's like, okay, well done America for digging into that. But I think it's because we resonate with it that like we've kind of been sold this lie that the mental, the, the mind and the heart operate in a different sphere than the body. And it just doesn't. We're whole beings and resilient people do that. So they take care of themselves in the aftermath of trauma. They they rest, they exercise gently, they feed their body good good foods. And so I've, I've brought that to mind a lot as I've thought about resilience. Um, agency, I think is another one is that it's, I, I think resilience requires you to understand how out of control we actually are in many ways, but also beckons you to, to, to name where you do have agency and where you do have control. And, and a lot of that has to do with attitude and care for yourself and, and community. So there are things that you can do to kind of shepherd yourself through the response or through, through the experience that are important and, and I guess finally, I think everything I read about resilience is that you can have all these factors, but the number one factor for resilience for people, people that were able to go through really hard times and, and somehow come out and be able to function well in life is that these were people that had an experience of unconditional love in their life. And so for me, that means my my role as a mother is really important to provide that unconditional love, but also to just lean into, for me to lean into the relationships where I am unconditionally loved and there's no need to perform and there's no need to pretend like everything's okay. If I can really kind of marinate, I think in that unconditional love, I think it, it has helped me to bounce back a bit. Yeah. Cause we talk about resilience a lot and we talk a lot about, the tearing, you know, like a muscle is resilient, right? If it's torn down, but then it gets built back stronger, um, is more resilient, right? Than one that's never tested. And yet it has to be a healthy muscle to begin with, right? It, like that, that unconditional love, um, makes a lot of sense, right? That there's only, you know, if, especially you think of trauma at an early, early age, that, that there is only so much resilience really yeah. that is yeah. possible. I yeah, mean, you can always grow right. a little bit, yeah. but it's so formative. Yeah. What's your hope um, that, you know, what sort of conversations do you hope that a hole in the world brings up and helps people name or articulate or move through? 
I, I, my great hope for the book is that it, it wouldn't be just grievers who pick up the book, but people who like everything's going fine and no one's dying and everyone's healthy, like be prepared because I was not prepared for grief. And I wish I had been like, I don't know why I like spent so much time in algebra two in high school. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're yeah. like, like chemistry why did I take chemistry in high school (laughs) like it's like you just it's like you just wish sometimes that we spent more time like teach me how to balance checkbook and plan a funeral and like just things you know things that you need to know pay a medical bill like in life um and 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 grief in some ways it can't really be taught until you experience it but there are I think there's, you can build some footholds into your life mentally, emotionally, spiritually, so that you're not just free falling when it happens. And, um, I think I, yeah. So I hope, I I don't know, my, my editor, my agent, I, we sometimes talk like grief books kind of hit a ceiling sometimes because it's like, just, I get it. When I was not grieving, I didn't want to read a book about grief. Like, but, but I, I, I wrote it for people who are curious about, what the experience of death is, is like, and what the experience of grief is like, if you, if, if you've never been there. And, you know, I write about just rituals of, um, um, you know, uh, wakes and dis, you know, displaying the body in the home of the fa- of the grieving family and how children were exposed to death from a really early age. And, you know, I want to be careful about that. I'm not a child psychologist, but I just think that we have just marginalized death and dying. So it's just not part of life. We outsource it to hospitals and we outsource it to funeral homes. And I'd really like us to all kind of say, that's not something for the professionals. It's, it's for all of us to, to deal with and, and for all of us to, um, to integrate into our lives because it will come for us someday, whether our own death or the death of someone we love. And, and so I think that's kind of my hope is just the normalization of death, dying and grief. And there are a lot of other people doing great work on this. You know, um, Rob Mall wrote his beautiful work, the, the art of dying. And he died at an early age and his wife has written this beautiful book, uh, Clarissa Mall, um, and I, about grieving. And so just the more people are writing about this. We're talking about this. Um, but it's just, it, it'll never be enough. I just think that, you know, that's another thing these rituals did is they introduced children and they introduced young people to the idea of grief and grieving. And we're not doing that these days. No, no. And, you know, I, it, it makes sense too, if you think about our, our society and just the way in which like American cultures become so polarized and so angry and full of outrage and rage. And if we're not able to have a whole spectrum socially, right, of of emotion, that's okay. Then we get like really big on one, <laughs> right? It, and we are not able to to be more balanced. Yeah, it's you're absolutely right, and that yeah, that balance is so important. I know you write about that. You talk about that a lot, but yeah, it's hard to find. Yeah. Well, as we conclude, I always love asking all my guests their laundry routines, <laughs> and it's one way to. One, get to know writers and thinkers and artists and and go, oh, look, they're just like us, right? Both in their grief and they have laundry. So, (laughs) Amanda, what what does your laundry routine look like? Oh, laundry. This is another thing I wish they'd told me in high school when I was learning chemistry and like the um, 
chemical equations and just just tell me, warn me, prepare me that you will spend like 50% of your life in your 40s and you know late 30s doing laundry and sweeping. Like I sweep, I sweep all the time. I've got two little kids. So, you know, I I am super fortunate in that I have never had a husband that expected me to do his laundry. So we own our own laundry, which is great. Um, but I do tend to take on the laundry of my children. And so we, we try to kind of make it like a fun thing is like folding laundry is when we like watch a TV show that we really enjoy. And so, um, yeah, that's, I think we just, it's about twice a week. That's the other thing my husband and I got into, I wouldn't call it an argument, but it was like an intense discussion the other day of how often a person should be doing laundry. Cause he's one of those save the laundry up <laughs> till three weeks. He's like once a month do laundry. It's, it's, it's a thing of wonder actually. And I'm like, yeah, twice a week, impressive. you got a family of four, two little kids making messes twice a week seems reasonable to me. Yes. So yes. Right. You're going to get some really baked in stains otherwise, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So about twice a week, we're having fun watching a show we like, folding the laundry together, and it's great. That's good. Yeah. I need to help my kiddos with that. They do their own laundry. It just sits clean in the bin instead of folded into drawers. Oh, it's the folding. It's the folding part of it. I don't know. Well, thank you, Amanda, for your vulnerability um, in the book and in our conversation, as well as, you know, choosing to have really good boundaries too on not overperforming our grief right so thank you for helping walk us through through that well thank you and thanks for all your wonderful work and your book met me at a time in my life where I really needed it so I'm grateful for you too oh thanks Amanda thanks so much for being here for listening and bearing with Amanda's loss, and maybe your own. These conversations are so important to have. And so if you've found this conversation helpful or encouraging, would you share this episode with a friend? I would love for more of us to have language and rituals and things to move forward with our own losses and pain. As we consider how this might actually apply to our everyday holy lives, we may or may not be in an actual season of grief. We may be the consoler to someone else's grief. So I want to encourage you, whether you find yourself in loss or you find yourself in pain or you see someone else who is, I'd like to encourage you to do two things, to, to sit in that to sit in our pain or grief and actually like let those emotions wash over you and know that they will have an end. And I would like to ask you to gently invite someone else into that space with you. And if you don't find yourself in a particular space of loss or pain or grief right now, I'd encourage you to pay attention. Pay attention to the people in the back of the pew who find themselves overcome or sad or lonely and simply choose to sit with them. Those are maybe the smaller elements of our daily and weekly practices that will form us to being good consolers as well. So remember our, our grief and pain are not simply individual, but we need a community. Thank you for being here. Please grab a copy of Amanda's book that's linked in the show notes. And may you remember wherever you are today, that these big things matter, but so does your laundry.